Well, I'm here with you today, and also I'll be back with you in about a month on the 4th of July Sunday. And uh, I, so I, wa- I want to do sermons with you today and next time that I'm with you. I may, I may be back again, but I don't know that. I do know July 4th is on the calendar. And what I'd like to do is do a couple sermons uh, related to Christ that kind of uh, speak about the, the beginning and the end of the story. So uh, today, I'm going to look with you from John chapter 1 at Christ as the eternal word of the Father, the eternal word who, who was the agent of the Father in bringing about creation. So from eternity past, next time when I'm with you, I want to talk about the second coming of Christ. I'll tell you now the text that I'll preach from. It's Psalm 2, the second psalm of the Psalter. Uh, is a psalm about the second coming of Christ. So kind of uh, the, the beginning and the end, because oftentimes we hear about the life of Christ and the death and the resurrection of Christ, but uh, the, the sort of the framework of it we don't know as well. So that's my purpose in this. So today, beholding the glory of the eternal word from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Let me just pray real briefly as we begin. Lord, as we open your word and begin to look at its riches and the beauty and the the wonder that that is before our eyes, we pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to see the beauty that is here, the glory that is here, and understand it with greater uh, accuracy uh, and greater depth of understanding, but also, Lord, to feel the weight of it, to see the beauty and the glory to revel in the greatness of Jesus and of the Trinity, of, of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray as we, as we engage in this study together this morning from John 1, verses 1 to 5, that you would be with us by your Spirit to help us to see more of you. And as a result, Lord, long to live lives to your glory increasingly. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let me read John 1, verses 1 to 5, just so you have them in mind as we start this morning. Uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The Son who became incarnate and lived among us as Jesus Christ of Nazareth is prior to the incarnation and eternally apart from the incarnation. He is the eternal Word of the Father, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Marvel at the eternal fullness of the deity of this Son, He who is God the Son. And marvel at this distinct personhood of this one who is the Son of the Father, so He is God the Son. Isn't that interesting? God the Son God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son really does convey then two things about Him. He's God the Son, but He's God the Son, so He is distinctively the Son of the Father. Well, we see this in the opening verses of John 1. Now, it begins with these opening phrases, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God of John 1.1. So I want to look with you first from John 1.1 and 2, that the eternal Word who was with God and who was God. The words in the beginning immediately bring to mind, anybody who knows their Bible, bring to mind what passage? Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, it's just very evident that what John is doing deliberately is drawing our attention by the opening phrase of his letter, of of his gospel. He's drawing our attention back to Genesis, back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, I want you to think of this in terms of how we would read this in light, how we would read John 1.1 in light of Genesis 1.1, because I think that's John's intention, taking us back to Genesis 1.1 to remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now have that in mind as we read what he writes here in John 1.1. So, in the beginning clearly ties the word of John 1, verses 1 and 2, to the God of Genesis 1-1, who exists eternally. So, think with me. Just think how you would read John 1-1 in light of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. Stop. So, might you conclude that John's intent by saying in the beginning was the Word is then to tie the Word with God of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. And so, indeed, the God of Genesis 1 must be the Word of John 1, 1, right? Well, keep reading. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Oh, wait a minute. I guess you can't make a quick, exact correspondence between God of Genesis 1 and the Word of John 1 because John goes on to say that the Word was with God. So, might it not be then that this Word, I mean, as you're thinking this through, as John writes this on the basis of Genesis 1, might it be then that this Word is not Himself God, but He is some being who is along with God, who who is there at the very beginning. Could that be the case? Keep reading. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh no, you can't conclude that the Word was a non-divine being who was with God at the beginning because He is Himself God. So, what you realize John is doing is he is representing for us Genesis 1-1 from a Trinitarian standpoint in a way that Genesis 1 would not have understood. Moses, who wrote Genesis 1-1, did not understand the Trinity. That had not yet been revealed. It really was not clear to the people of God that the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit until Jesus came and, as it were, forced the issue that indeed He's from the Father, He prays to the Father, He obeys the Father, He was sent by the Father, and yet I and the Father are one. 
John 10, 30. Before Abraham was, I am, identifying himself with Yahweh, the, the God of, of uh, deliverance at the Exodus from Exodus 3.14. So indeed, Jesus forced the issue for the early church on, the, on what has become then the doctrine of the Trinity to realize that the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So I think this is what John is doing in John 1.1 is he's, he's giving us the opportunity to rethink Genesis 1.1 and really the opening chapter of Genesis, but especially Genesis 1-1, in light of what now we know about God, that He is the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. So, <clears throat> when it says that the Word was with God, John indicates then that the Word exists eternally as distinct from the Father, right? So, the Word is a distinct person, from the Father, both of them God, that's the next phrase, the word was God, declares explicitly that the eternal word is fully God along with the Father. So indeed, you realize what John is doing here is helping us understand that this word is at one and the same time distinct from the Father, distinct from God, as he's calling him here in John 1.1, distinct from God, and yet he is himself God. There is both distinction and there is unity or identity or equality that takes place between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Of course, Spirit isn't mentioned in these opening verses, but that would be the case as well. So, we realize as, as, as John says these, these words that begin the Gospel of John, we, we have to have a template of, of an understanding of the Trinity to make sense of this. So let, let me just, I know I've talked about this with you before in another sermon another time, but let me just review for you real quickly. When you think about the doctrine of the Trinity, God who is one, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, it really requires that we understand two fundamental truths, two principles, uh, two pillars as it were. This is the metaphor I like to, to use two pillars that uphold this massive, glorious doctrine of the Trinity. Think of it as a giant granite block doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. And for this massive doctrine to be upheld, two pillars have to be in place, and both of them strong, but both of them real in order to uphold the doctrine of the Trinity. The one of them is the distinction pillar, distinction. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons. The Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. Do you see that? So, it is not the case in the doctrine of the Trinity that Father, Son, and Spirit are three names for the same person. It is not that way with the Trinity. So, here, here is what it is not. I have three names. I, I'm Bruce. I'm Mr. Ware, and I'm Jody's husband, all right? So, you know, and those three names just relate to this one same person. Anything you say about Bruce, you would say about Mr. Ware. Anything you'd say about Mr. Ware, you'd say about Jody's husband. Well, what would you conclude? Well, Bruce is Mr. Ware. Mr. Ware is Jody's husband, right? Because they all refer, they're just three names of the same person. Is that the way it is of the Trinity? No. Father is Father, not Son, 
Son is son, not spirit. The Father is the one who begets the Son. The Son is the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And you look through the Bible and you realize the role distinctions that take place among the Trinitarian persons is so, is so real. The Father is the one who sends the Son. The Son is the one sent by the Father. The Spirit sent by the Father and the Son at Pentecost. So indeed, the three persons of the Godhood, Godhood then are distinct from each other. But that's one pillar. What's the other pillar? Equality, unity, indeed identity, where the, the nature of the Father is the identically same nature as the nature of the Son. The nature of the Son is the identically same nature as the nature of the Spirit. So notice it's not merely that the Father, Son, and Spirit have the same kind of nature. That's true for you and me. You have a human nature, I have a human nature, and that's what constitutes our equality. You know, we need to remember that in all this discussion these days over race relations, that every race of the human race, there's really only one race, right? I mean, we really have taken a name, race, and applied it to ethnicities, and skin color in ways that isn't really appropriate because we're all one human race because we all are made in the image of God. We all descend from Adam, right? So, indeed, we all have the same kind of human nature. You have a human nature. I have a human nature. You're in the image of God. I'm in the image of God, and therefore, we are equal. But notice the difference with the Trinity. With the Trinity, it's not that the Father merely has the same kind of nature as the Son, Oh, no, the Father has the identically same nature as the Son possesses. And the Son doesn't have merely the same kind of nature as the Spirit. Oh, no, the Son has the identically same nature that the Spirit possesses. One nature, what is nature? What is the divine nature? It it is the collection, as it were, of all of the essential attributes of God. His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His his wisdom, all of the essential attributes of God comprise the nature of God, and that one nature is the full possession of the Father, and that identically same nature is the full possession of the Son, and that identically same nature is the full possession of the Spirit. You hear it? So, one nature, one God. But that one nature is possessed by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit fully. So each is fully God, and yet not three gods, but rather three distinct personal expressions of the one undivided nature of God. Does it make sense? Now, years ago, some, some of you know this story already, uh, when, when, I was, when my wife and I were raising our two girls who are now grown, and uh, both, you know, walking with the Lord, we're so grateful for that. It's just such a, a mercy of God. But when they were little, uh, I, I remember just wanting so badly to, to have more input into their spiritual growth, spiritual lives, and didn't know exactly how to do that. I mean, I had a very full job, and, 
and the like. So anyway, I came up with this idea that at bedtime, I would spend a few moments with each one and sort of walk them through systematic theology. I mean, I teach it for a living, and so it's easy for me to do. It's just all in my head, you know, so I, it, was, it didn't require any preparation for me uh, to, to do that. So I just wanted to, you know, teach them the, the, the glories of who God is and, and uh, how God made us in His image and, and what happened because of sin and what Christ did when He came in His, uh, in his life and His death and, and, and His uh, atoning work and so on. So anyway, as I was doing this, the, the time came when we eventually came to the doctrine of the Trinity in these evening bedtime talks with my girls. And uh, I wanted so badly to give them some illustration that would help them understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but any illustration or analogy that I was aware of was an analogy of one kind of heresy or another. <laughs> you know, it just, they just have problems. And so I prayed and I said, Lord, if there is an analogy that works, please help me know it because I don't know it. And, uh, and I, because I'd love to use that to help my girls understand the Trinity better. So a couple nights later, in the middle of the night, I woke up with this idea in mind, got up and wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, and I've used it ever since. So I think the Lord gave this to me. Uh, and if, if He did, He gets all the glory, all the credit for a very, very helpful illustration, I believe. If I came up with this myself and it's wrong, uh, then I take the blame. This is how this works, you know. So in any case, here, here's the illustration. Imagine a whiteboard back behind me here where I take a a blue marker, and draw on the whiteboard one large blue circle. So you have on the board one circle that is encompassed by one line, a blue line, all right? Now I take another marker, say a red, red marker, and I draw on the board a red circle that overlaps the blue one exactly. So the red goes right over the blue line exactly. So you have on the board one circle, the blue circle is the red circle. They're identically the same circle. But the red line is not the blue line. So it's a blue circle and a red circle, and yet the circle that's encompassed by, by the blue and the red is the identically same circle. Now, now I take a third one, say a green marker, and overlap exactly that, the, the, the blue and the red. And so you have on the board one circle that is encompassed by a blue line, a red line, and a green line, where... The green circle is the blue circle, the blue circle is the red circle, but the green line and the blue line and the, the red line are distinct lines, so distinct expressions of the identically same circle. That's the idea with the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct expressions of the one undivided divine nature. Now, where my analogy, this analogy fails, is it doesn't convey the personal aspect right? So yes, the green line is a distinct expression of that circle, but it's not a distinct personal expression, right? There's no, nothing personal about this. It's a geometric figure. Whereas with the Trinity, the Father is a, a distinct personal expression, the Son a distinct personal expression, and the Spirit likewise a distinct personal expression. So indeed, you have then with the, with the, the Trinity, uh, both of these pillars then have to be in place and, and really do represent for us what the doctrine of the Trinity then teaches us, that there is one God. 
So, so the Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God, fully God, identically the same God. And yet, the Father is a distinct expression of that deity. The Son, a distinct expression. The Spirit, a distinct expression. Now, hear John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Which pillar? Distinction, right? One with the other. The two are distinct from each other. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equality, identity, unity of the two together. So, indeed, we see then these opening words then highlight both the the distinctiveness of the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, but also the unity and the equality of the Father and the Son right at the beginning of John's gospel. Now, one more thing. Notice, though, the emphasis is on distinction, right? Because listen to verse 2 along with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so he comes back to that notion of the Word being with God in verse 2. So he's highlighting, as it were, the importance of the distinctiveness. Why does he do that? Think Genesis 1 again. In Genesis 1, when you think of the God who brought into being the universe, what do you think of just from Genesis 1? You think of the one God. And you would think of the one God, likely, the way uh, the, the, the people of Israel thought about the one God, and that is there is one God who is one person, right? They didn't understand the three-person nature of God until Christ came. So, they're thinking of the one God as one person. So, so John here is highlighting, is emphasizing the distinctiveness of the Word from the Father, as he now moves on to creation in verse 3. So, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. Okay, so highlighting the distinctiveness of the Son from the Father, the Word from the Father. And then he goes on now in verse 3, and he says, all things came into being through Him. The Him has to be the Word, right? Uh, he, he, he was in the beginning with God. He, the, the Word, uh, is the one who then brought into being all things. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, the phrase, in the beginning, at the beginning of John 1, 1, not only ties the Word to the God of Genesis 1, but it ties the Word of John 1 to God the Creator of Genesis 1, right? So, it's actually the Creator that we're thinking about when we think of the Word. But notice, this is so fascinating. It is as the Word of the Father in John 1 that He is the agent of creations. All things came into being by Him. You hear that language? That, that indicates that He is an agent. It came into being by Him. So, someone was bringing creation into being by the Word. Think back to, John, to, to Genesis 1 again. 
Now, the longer context of Genesis 1. How did creation take place in Genesis 1? Quite literally, how did it happen? Each day of creation. Do you remember what, what we read? Then God said. Then God said. Then God said. Then God said. You have that formula all the way through, all through all through all six days of creation, even with the sixth day of the creation of man, it's the same thing, although the language changes. Before that, it was, then God said, let there be light and, and let there be these various things that come about. In verse 26, it's, then God said, uh, let us make man in our image. Notice the plural there, let us make man, a hint of the Trinity, right, that they, don't, that they could not understand yet. But there it is, a hint of the Trinity that's right there in Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So, here's the main point I'm making, though, is that the way creation takes place in Genesis 1 is as God speaks. So, notice that John's preference for what, how he describes the Son in the prologue of John's gospel, in the, in the opening verses of John's gospel, is not son, which is his favorite word through the whole rest of the gospel. And we, we know this, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten word? No, no. You don't hear word again. It's always son, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God did not send His Son into the world that the world would be condemned, but the world be saved through Him. So, indeed, through the whole rest of the Gospel of John, you never again hear John refer to the Son as the Word, but you do in the prologue. Why? Genesis 1, how did God create? He spoke and brought into existence the universe. So indeed, the Son was the agent of the Father, the speech of the Father, the Word of the Father. So as the, as the Father designed creation, the Son implemented it. The Son brought it to be by His own Word. So as Word of the Father, He is then the Father's agent of creation. The Father creates as He speaks, exactly as Genesis 1 records for us. And this is confirmed. I mean, we know we're on the right track here because this is confirmed elsewhere in the New Testament. So let me give you just a couple other examples. What am I illustrating? I'm illustrating that the Father creates through the agency of the Son. And when you tie that to Genesis 1, it's as He speaks and brings into existence creation. So, here's, here's a passage. I don't have it. Yeah, I do, I do have it on the handout. So, Psalm 33, 6, for example. You, you can turn there or just listen if you like. Psalm 33, 6, we read these words. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all of their hosts. Do you hear it? So, indeed, how, how is the, the earth and the heavens brought into existence? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How does that happen according to Psalm 33.6? By the word of the Lord, the heavens are made. By the breath of His mouth, all of their hosts. So, indeed, God creates, the Father creates through the agency of His Son, who is His speech, His word that brings about creation. 
So the, the Son is the, the Father's agent in creation. Here's another passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Now listen particularly to the prepositions. The prepositions. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. You hear it? You hear the Son as the agent of the Father in creating? We, we believe in one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. Right? So, so indeed, from the Father, through the Son, is the way creation takes place. And what, one final passage, Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it highlights the, the primacy of the Father uh, in, in everything that the Son does. So, he says in verse 1, God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways. And you wonder who God is in this text in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways. Well, you'll soon find out who this God is. Keep listening. But in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Stop. So, who is the God who speaks to us now in His Son. It has to be, can I hear it from anyone? It has to be the Father, right? God the Father. Why? It cannot refer to the one God who is the triune God because the one God who is the triune God does not have a Son. The one God who is the triune God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Nor does the Son have a Son, nor does the Spirit have a Son. The only one who has a Son is the Father. So, God spoke to us in the prophets in many portions in many ways in the past, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. So, this is the Father who in the incarnate life of Christ spoke to us through His Son. And indeed, this is exactly what Jesus said. You know, he, in John 8, I do, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. I, I, the, the, the things that I do, I do what the Father tells me to do. I, I have come to do the will of my Father and to accomplish His work. So indeed, everything the Son says, everything the Son does is a reflection of what the Father wants to speak through Him, what, what the Father wants to do through Him. And that's not overstated when I said everything. It is everything. Everything the Son said, everything the Son did is a reflection of the Father's will and work and word through Him. Okay, so God spoke to the prophets in many portions in many ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom, Son, He, Father, appointed heir of all things. That's future. We'll talk about this idea next time I'm here on July 4th, uh, the, the future coming of Christ. Whom He appointed heir of all things. And here's, here's the phrase that relates to our topic here. Through whom, Son, He, Father, created the world. Through whom He created the world. So indeed, it is the Father creating through the Son. Do you hear it? So indeed, the Son is then the agent of the Father. So what you see then is the Son always acting as one who carries out the work the Father gives Him to do. In creation, you see this. In, in, in the work that he does, in his life's incarnate work, he does that. Always fulfilling the will of the Father. In, in the life to come, he does that. The Son always is Son, 
right? He always is son. He always functions as son of the Father. So indeed, the word then of the Father is, is indicating he's the agent of the Father who speaks into existence creation. So again, uh, he, he, here, here's a, just an obvious uh, uh, point that I'm making here, and that is how important it is to read John 1, the prologue, from Genesis 1. And it's not as though John didn't give us a good clue as to why we should do that. In the beginning, right? In the beginning, immediately takes you back to Genesis 1, and you realize this is exactly what he's doing. But he's helping us understand Genesis 1 now in a Trinitarian context, where we see it's the Father who creates through the Son. So the Father and the Word are co-eternal in the beginning, but they're distinct. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So indeed, eternally co-eternal deity, and yet distinct in their personhood. Now, one more thing I want you to see in this, and, how, and that's how important it is what Jesus, or what John says about Jesus, about the Word in John, John 1 verse 3. So, all things came into being through Him. Notice it does not say all other things. All other things, right? All things came into being through Him. So, indeed, He is the Creator of all that is. So, that means, among other things, that He Himself is not created, right? I mean, so, you, you, you know, during the days of the Trinitarian controversies that were taking place, particularly in the 4th century, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, these were huge issues. The 4th century was kind of the focal point and there was a view out there uh, pro- proposed by a, a, a theologian by the name of Arius who said, you know, I believe in monotheism, you know, that there is only one God, and clearly the Father is God. So what do we say of the Son? Well, he said it has to be then the Son is the first created being of the Father. That was Arius' view, which was rejected by the early church. So in the Nicene Creed, if you ever read it, you'll notice it says that, that Christ is begotten, not made. That not made is to say, you're wrong, Arius. No, he's not a created being. He's not made. He's not brought into being. He is eternally begotten of the Father. He is son of the Father uh, in, in, in an eternal fashion. So there never was a time when he was not. So indeed, he is the, the eternal word, eternal son from the Father. And therefore, he is not himself a created thing. So all things came into being by him. So indeed, it confirms then that he is the one who has rightful rulership and lordship over everything that he has made. I mean, this is just good biblical theology. To create is to own. To own is to have rightful rulership over. Well, how much, according to John 1, 3, did Christ create? All things, everything. How much does He have rightful rulership over? Everything. I mean, what a joy it is to affirm that. So, all things came into being by Him confirms then the Word as the exclusive creator of all that is created... As creator of all, he has intrinsic ownership of, of and authority over all. But then also, uh, when it goes on to say, 
Not only all things came into being through him, but apart from him, nothing came into being that is coming into being. It's, it's as if John wants to just emphasize this. He cannot then be himself one of the things that was created. He has to be uncreated. He has to be a self-existent, self-sufficient being himself in order to bring everything into being, but himself not come into being. So he is eternally the eternal word of the Father. Which then brings us to the last two verses of, of this beginning of the prologue in John 1, verses 4 and 5. We read, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So now we see the eternal word is not only the one who was with God and was God, not only the, the agent of creation, but here the Word is the self-existent source of life and light. The self-existent source of light and life. So really what he says in verse 4, in Him was life, is just a logical extension of what he has said earlier in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that means nobody brings Him into existence. It's rather that He eternally exists, which must mean He has life in Himself, right? So, He is a self-existent being. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who possess the identically same nature, that nature among other things, has the quality of self-existence. It's not dependent. Have you heard the word contingent? Contingent meaning dependent. So, the, the, the triune persons do not have contingent existence. They don't depend upon something else for their existence. Uh, you know, if you read Psalm 50, Psalm 50 is really an indictment of the people of Israel for buying into the ancient Near Eastern notion that God is needy and God need, needs to be fed, you know, e eating the, the, the flesh of bulls and drinking the blood of male goats and, you know, th thinking that if we, if we fill up God's belly and quench His thirst, make Him happy, then He'll give good things to us. No, that's how it works with the, the idols the, the false gods of the, of the nations, but that is not the way it works with Yahweh, who does not need anything that He has made. He exists eternally. So, indeed, everything that exists in this world is dependent upon God, but how, how much is God dependent upon the world? And the answer is not at all. I mean, if he was, if he were dependent upon the world, and the world has not existed forever, what does that say about God before creation? Bad news, isn't it? I mean, so indeed, no, God is God. He always is God. He's the same God. He's the immutable God. And so he doesn't change when he creates the world. Rather, what he does is give to the world all that it needs. But he does not need what he had made. So, indeed, that's in the background here in the statement of of. Verse 4 then, that in Him was life. He has life in Himself as evidenced by the fact that He brought into being everything that needs support for its existence, but He stands as one who is life and does not need anything for His own existence. 
He is self-existent and self-sufficient, this Word of the Father. And of course, He is that along with the Father. I mean, we know that from the earlier verses. So indeed, uh, when when He says that in, in Him was life, it indicates that He has existence of Himself. Nobody has brought Him into existence, nor was life given to Him, as Calvin has said, Uh, The Son is autotheos. He is God of Himself. Auto of Himself, theos, God. He is God of Himself. So indeed, He does not need anything that He has made because He is Himself life. But look at the generosity, the sharefulness. I know that's not a real word, but I love it. I I, I don't know a better way to, to express this idea, the sharefulness. He's full of sharing, the, 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 the benevolence, the kindness of God. When we read, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So what does He do? This fullness of life that is eternally His, He doesn't hold to Himself. He, he, he doesn't refuse to let others share in this. Instead, just the opposite. He shines that life as light into this world. Despite the fact, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So despite the fact that people don't receive the light in the way that it is, for for what it is. Look at John 3 as well. Uh, John 3 verse 19, you see the same idea. John 3.19, these are actually the words of Jesus Himself. He says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Isn't that just what we read in, in uh, verse 5, verses 4 and 5? The light has come into the world, but look at this, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So God has to do a work to change people's hearts so that they turn from being lovers of darkness and haters of the light. They turn now to become lovers of the light and haters of the darkness. That requires a work of grace, a work of God in the heart of people. So his point, back to John 1 verse 5, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. They do not see the light for what it is, and that is the life-giving light, the, 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 the light that will bring one to, to truth and to beauty and to joy in one's life. That's what His light is. It's the light of life. It's the light of joy. It's the light of true fulfillment, true flourishing, true truth that we can embrace forever and ever. He brings that to us because He is life expressed in light that is the light of joy and truth and beauty. So, what an amazing thing, this eternal Word who is with God and is God, who is creator of all that is, and then when He comes into the world, 
he brings with him all that he is, this light and life, and brings it to us. So here's the question I want to leave you with as we close today. Given the fact that Jesus, this eternal Word, this, this eternal Son of the Father, is so infinitely glorious, so amazingly powerful, I mean, think of this universe. He brings it into being by His own power, His omnipotence. He is glorious and majestic and filled with splendor. And yet, He came into this world to bring the only life there is through the light that He shines forth. For what purpose? For what He gets out of it? Oh, no. For what we need desperately. We need that life that will only come as we see the light and, and receive it and accept it. So, my question is this. Number one, do you see Jesus as the source of true life, true fulfillment, true happiness, true joy, true beauty, true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, as opposed to fake news, you know, as, as, as opposed to false claims that, that are claiming to be true. True truth. Do you realize that's Jesus? And it's nowhere else. You don't find this in other philosophies. You don't find this in other religions. You find it in Jesus. Can I give you his words to support this? John 7, John, John uh, 6, 6, wait, 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 wait now what, what passage is this? Um, I am the way, the truth, John 16, John 14, 6, thank you. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? And, and John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. So indeed, you know this about him, that there's no one else. All others are imposters. I know this isn't a popular message. This is not the message of our culture that wants all religions to be the same, that wants any, any claim of truth to be equally legitimate. But no, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know that? Are you committed to that? Are you pursuing truth in Jesus, in His Word? And secondly, when that truth comes as light to you, what's your response to it? Do you see it as the people do in John 3, 19? Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. They would not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. Do you see that life as attractive, that, that light as attractive, that light drawing you to it, that light that shows you the pathway to, to true, true human flourishing? Do you see it? Well, my friends, this is who He is. Uh, and, and be amazed that that glorious God who, who did not need to do this has created and then provided 
The Father provided His very Son to be the one who would bring this to us when He didn't have to do it. It's incredible. So how have you responded to this? May God help us to respond in a way in which we embrace the light and the life of the Son. Never forget, the one who took on our human nature to live and die for us is none other than the eternal Word, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Be amazed at what condescension, what humility He has shown in coming to us. May we respond as we must in honor to Him by accepting His light and life for His glory and, yes, for our everlasting good. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this opening to John's gospel that is just incredibly glorious when we see here how John is helping us to rethink Genesis 1 and rethink what it means for God as Father and Son, as the one who speaks in the spoken word to bring about creation, and then revel in the light and life that is His. So, Lord, thank You for these opening words of John's gospel. We pray that You would help us to glory in Jesus, to to revel in His, His greatness and His mercy toward us. And help us, Lord, to love Him and long to follow Him more faithfully, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.